0: don't know about you but most of these sounds fill me with a dull dread. When I started climbing you used to be able to head down to the Vickers field in Pembrokeshire and there was no problem with just switching your phone off. There wasn't any signal anyway. These days I can check my emails and actually get work done at the crag. It's horrible. Over the past few months we've got pretty used to one kind of isolation. And it's not the kind that climbers usually enjoy. We're so connected now, all the time, that the other kind of isolation is hardly possible, even way out in the mountains. And I quite like spending time on my own. In the past, I've had whole weekends soloing in the mountains by myself. But even on those crags, you're rarely totally isolated. I wanted to get some perspectives on that. Is it even possible to be totally isolated in the mountains these days? Out of contact, away from civilization? Is it even justifiable? On today's show, we've got two stories. From PLA door recipient Tom Livingstone and mountain guide and expedition maestro Mike Twid-Turner, who you might remember rescued a young Franco Cookson on Ben Nevis in a previous episode. You're listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. These are both stories about a time when being in contact in the mountains might have been useful. For Tom, the contact that was available was just enough. For Twid, he could have done with a little bit more. First up, Tom.
1: I just think that the climbing has this, like, anarchistic or a slightly rock and roll, do what we like type of attitude. And, um,. We've. It certainly has a, a lot of strong characters in its history and a tradition of doing these sorts of not illegal but frowned upon activities. And it's very interesting to talk about that in the context of what we're going through at the moment, this whole stay inside corona yeah. crisis thing. And I'm not saying we should all discuss is it okay to go outside, but it is interesting to. I think it's really important that, as Nick Bullock says, to kind of like protect the characters in climbing, to to keep climbing, soul going, to have this attitude of like, we're going to do it because it's fun and because we are thinking about what we enjoy most. That's everything that matters to us at this time. So we're going to get on a bold route because we want to climb it, not because we're going to think of the consequences or what might happen, what may or might not go wrong. So I think it's really cool to try and keep climbing as this slightly wacky activity. Basically, you can be rescued from uh, many, many places these days. I don't know if it's everywhere, but for example, in remote Pakistan. But it's annoying that it's changed my mind slightly. And now, like, I like going outside and going on expeditions without. Phones. I like, I don't take my phone when I go tread climbing, for example, because it's nice to get away from everything. But then, is it irresponsible just to go to these places without any form of communication? And I guess the answer is yes, it's irresponsible. We should all be carrying them because to not carry them is kind of negligent and and inviting much worse consequences should you need to call a rescue. It's interesting. There was a really cool uh, interview with Rolo garabotti who spends a lot of time in Patagonia. And one of the winters, I think it was last winter, they had a number of serious rescues. Some of which were helped by people having communication devices, and others which were um, very serious because no, commu- they didn't carry communication devices. And Rolo was saying, "Well, you." at least in Patagonia, you have to carry these things now. And so the mentality with climbing in the mountains there has changed. Same with if, you, if you're if you Leo Holding and you go to um, wherever they went in South America recently, he was doing, was it broadcasts from the wall and got a helicopter to the top of this thing? I was just like, I, I didn't follow it, but I was like, wow this is modern technology in action it's certainly not for me but it's really interesting to to see and yeah I mean I guess if you can bring that experience of climbing a big wall in South America to people's eyes and ears via modern technology then great why not that they're probably people will be Saying, this is fantastic. Please keep sharing these sorts of things. Same with the idea of a rescue, I guess. It does just make me want to go climbing outside <laughs> and just to turn off my phone. And I think that is like the epitome of what I enjoy in climbing. It's like the movement, the feeling, the being outside, being with good mates. I really enjoy that like connectedness that you get with other people. But it's just really, interesting that I also just want to be like okay I'm going outside I don't want anything to do with this because it's I can see it's fine for some people but it's just not for me so thanks very much and see you later (laughs) weird yeah it's funny I was wondering if we were going to talk about um, like okay 159 and yeah we'll talk about Das Hoover and Ben and Jerry and like Fucking yes, more climbing. Um, And trad climbing and like Necky on sites in Pembroke. But instead we're talking about what does it mean to be a rebel in today's society?
0: (laughs) I think this question of what's too much is always interesting in climbing. If you can be rescued from anywhere, that makes some places a lot more accessible. But it does seem to take away something from the point of exploring. If you've listened to this series, you might have got the measure of me as a fairly morbid individual. I'm a big fan of dystopian literature. One of my favourites is Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. In it, society is presented as having two destinations. One is the technological utopia. The people are apparently happy, but no one's really free. In the other lie the savages. Religious, riddled with illnesses, but appreciative of beauty and freedom. In one famous scene, John, born in savagery, tells the world state's leader, I don't want comfort. I want God. I want poetry. I want real danger. I want freedom. Both worlds encapsulate a different kind of madness. Huxley said he regretted not presenting a third option, the one we all inhabit, where the boundaries are blurry, but real life exists. I sometimes wonder about this with climbing. Every time a new invention comes out, and makes the sport a little safer, are we actually moving towards that insane utopia? Removing all of the real adventure? But the flip side of this is deliberately accepting risk, and avoiding things which could mitigate it, like we saw with Neil Gresham on the Indian face in the last episode. That also seems like madness. Much as we want the isolation, being in touch can be pretty useful. Especially if, say, you fall in a crevasse on the descent from a new route on Koyozum in Pakistan pressing the button for a rescue looks like a pretty good choice then
1: came back home to my parents place and like all the relatives were there at christmas and suddenly it was like not not well everyone was very interested in oh what have you been up to sort of thing but suddenly there was this thing that they also knew about and it was an accident and it was a negative portrayal of climbing rather than whatever you're doing is climbing and that's positive there was suddenly this negative thing that they could be aware of and of course like your family are very supportive and stuff but they always would like give you a hug at the end and be like be safe and you're like i'm trying to be safe (laughs) but it was just like this this like expectation that one day you'd have another accident or like there's just that change of how people viewed you perhaps and that's it's that effect on others that makes you or really makes you real in the boldness for example of course I was aware of risk before and actually probably my view of risk hasn't really changed I think I'm quite in some respects cold and analytical about risk but now I'm just aware that it's a bit more of a conversation or it comes into my head once in a while as opposed to very infrequently more like you've just seen the consequences of when things go wrong and so suddenly you're like right this would be really annoying or this would be very unfortunate to have an accident here I guess yeah just the consequences of having an accident in the mountains are often lengthy and not very good it was interesting because in Pakistan last year with. Ali, that was the first time we'd climbed together, first time we'd properly climbed together anyway. So it was quite like a baptism of fire for the partnership. I think Ali's got a very strong head, both in terms of like mind and, thankfully, he didn't get a worse head injury, because in the grand scheme of things, it sounded like it was quite a minor head injury. Well, I don't know. It it basically seemed like... um, yeah, Ali has got a tough mind, a tough head, and so I was like very grateful for that. I just tend to like think about it and be like, "Oh, well, it will really be bad to get in, to have an accent here. Let's try not to have an accent here." And okay, these are things we can deal with. These are things we can do if we do have an accent. So I just kind of process it and then move on, I guess. And I remember when Pete. Graham and Ben Sylvester went to the Revelation Mountains in Alaska. They said they set up their tent where the ski plane dropped them on the glacier. And then they were just like struck by the isolation. And they were like one day they'd ski a little bit and then come back to camp. And then the next day they'd ski a little bit further and then come back to camp, just like slowly expanding their comfort zones. And uh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe just because I've gone with... a often gone with a really good partner like Ushin, for example or my two Slovenian friends but it just seems like we're kind of having fun and messing around and well, not messing around but you know there's always this like light attitude or uh, light uh, atmosphere and so you're like well okay well we're stuck in the middle of nowhere but let's not have an accident or let's try and avoid it and worst comes to worst we'll just call a ski plane and get the ski plane back I remember being in my late teens, early twenties, and even walking up to Ben Nevis in winter, being like pretty scared about what could happen. We could fall off, or we could like some gear could rip and stuff like that. Just going in quite a quite a weak mind, or whatever I don't know, like a quite a susceptible mind. And thinking of all the things that could go wrong and definitely being intimidated by the scale of things and I think I must have felt a bit of that in Alaska as well on my first trip but now I guess perhaps it's just familiarization you know it's a bit like soloing you'd never jump on a hard route on like solo it but if you do a bunch of routes to warm up to it and you kind of Get your head in the right space, then it's a, a possibility. So perhaps it's just being more familiar with the environment, or just knowing that I will feel isolated in in wherever if I go to one of these places. Once you know you're going to feel like that, then when you do feel like that, it, it isn't such a surprise. Perhaps it is easy to be like, well, let's view things in a positive way. Let's take every experience as a beneficial experience but for sure like when I've spent thousands of pounds and months of my life getting ready for something and then you you get there and for whatever reason you you aren't able to climb something and you've lost racks worth of gear and you've been training for ages and you really want to do this thing then it sucks of course yeah it would be um you'd be painting it in the wrong light to um, say otherwise but for sure it's easy to also frame these things um, in the only way that we know which is also which is the fact that if you go to the top of something then it's the end of the climb just like how Hazel was so close when she had that attempt on that go on magic line and um, fell off like one move from the top or something but still we draw that we draw like the finish line as it were as the top of the route so um there's such a small difference between like dropping the last move and actually clipping the chains but yet it's it's the it's the thing that we define it by will sim had asked um myself, Ushen, Hawthorne, Ali Swinton and John Crook, if we'd be psyched to go to this relatively remote and unexplored area of northern Pakistan. And um, it's it's a cool idea to have loads of people in a base camp. So it's really sociable. You can all just have a laugh and all climb different things. Um, So it's a really cool concept and one that we'd all been talking about for ages, but it's very good of, like, cool of will to get the whole thing off the ground. And you sort of know that with five people going to Pakistan, unfortunately, some people are going to get sick because of the food or the water or just whatever. Um, And actually, the sort of schedule that you have to roughly stick by uh, is to acclimatise quite a bit before you're able to go climbing. And so if you miss out one or two of those bits of acclimatisation, then unfortunately you're sort of um, not quite in the, the best shape for going for whatever you want to do, for example. It's just in, in your mind. So that's why basically when it came down to it, we were all camped underneath Koyo Zom and um, Ali and I wanted to climb the, this really cool looking thing on the right-hand side, the northwest base. Uh It did look like it would, be very tricky and um, quite a slim chance of success. But it, this was the thing that I was originally motivated by when I saw the photo um, that Will sent me maybe eight months before we actually went to Pakistan. So this was the line, this was the thing that stood out as looking, in my eyes, um, pretty cool. And unfortunately, because Will, usgin and John, they'd all had their own different thoughts and um, Unfortunately, had missed out on bits of the acclimatization schedule just because they'd been a bit unlucky. Um, they went for the left-hand side of Koyozom. and I guess it's more like at the northeast ridge. And it did look pretty gnarly, but hopefully, it looked a bit more amenable or would allow them to acclimatize a bit en route. And as Will rightly said, uh, he'd had three trips to the Himalaya um, or to the sort of that region. Um, the greater ranges and he'd um, kind of been shut down on the first two so he sort of said well it's just nice to try and climb something so it did look like a good option um, for those guys that's kind of how it all came about it kind of looked like you would basically stack maybe one or two of Gogarth Main cliff, Um so that's like 90 metres so 180 metres um, of amazing, pretty overhanging rock and um, little bits of ice and stuff, stacked two of those on top of each other. And that was the head wall that Ali and I were kind of gunning towards. Um, so we were pretty uncertain about how we'd be able to get through that. And so we thought there was yeah a good chance that we could get through it um, somehow. But Whether it took us like three days or six days to get through this thing, we weren't really sure. Uh, That's one of the things that drew us towards it, though, was the uncertainty and the fact that wouldn't it be cool to get that technical difficulty, that like technical rock climbing and ice climbing and everything all mixed together, get that from sea level at Gogarth and then punch that to like 6,000 metres and suddenly you're like having to climb tricky moves you know uh, that's basically what attracts me most to climbing or one of the things that attracts me to climbing is that technical difficulty take hard climbing at sea level but then take it and put it at altitude is just really cool I think and so we were pretty excited just to like give it a go and see if it would work out we had quite a few of these like lines traced on the wall in our heads but um when we got there it was like immediately apparent that, oh, okay, that that like massive corner system that's above us is like three hundred meters high and it's all overhanging and it kind of looks a bit weird and steep. That will take us like a week to get up that. We don't have that long. So let's go like round the corner where there's a much easier corner system. Um so quite often we were like, yeah, ducking and diving, just seeing what we could see, but then it was very lucky that we managed to find this like subtle weakness through the like meet of the head wall um in order to get through the get to the like more slabby easier ground going through this head wall finding this like really subtle weakness was absolutely mega it was lucky or as good as the climbing has got for me in the mountains because i had my rock shoes on and it was really, really good rock. Amazing position, like really, really wild, just like Gogoth. So it's steep, but with pretty good gear and good holds. You're at 6,200 meters. The sun's come round right in the afternoon, evening. You're actually rock climbing and you're like danger crimping in, in sunshine with like kind of warm hands for an hour or so. And you could kind of get 3D bridged and wiggle out a little rock or a little stone and then just drop it and it would go... All the way down to the glacier, like hundreds of meters below. So it just felt really, really surreal, really cool. And of course, every time you do some like tricky moves, you'd be pumped and um, breathing hard because of the altitude. So I did pull on some bits of gear for sure. Then following up this like really cool little groove system in order to um, get to the easier ground. Yeah, it just felt wild, it felt really cool to be doing hard rock climbing, but in the middle of nowhere in Pakistan, and then behind you, literally the other side of the valley from base camp is Afghanistan, and behind that is China. We only had one like text sat phone sort of thing. It's a a Garmin inReach, so you can only text. So we took that and Will, John and Ustian just had a sat phone but that was uh, unable to connect uh, to anyone and couldn't receive any messages so we were really basically out of communication And one of the reasons why they bailed after 5 or 6 days or something was because the climbing was very tricky and they were feeling ill but also because they um, thought bad weather was coming in on their sat phone and the sat phone wasn't receiving updated messages but yeah it's good not to think too much about things. <laughs> but basically, we, we saw their footsteps. weren't We couldn't see their footsteps going from where we knew they'd started climbing. Uh, so they obviously hadn't got to the top. So we just knew they'd gone down. And hopefully, they'd gone down safely. You know, they're like a strong team of three. So we assumed they'd bailed and were back in base camp. We'd always thought we could um, wrap the line that we'd climbed up on the northwest face. But um, once we'd actually climbed it, it turned out to be not a very nice proposition. It probably would have lost like racks and racks worth of gear and would have been quite tricky. So we decided to go down the east face, like the east side of the mountain. It's only ever been climbed twice about 50 years ago and up the east side, which is like much easier snow. So we thought that will be a pretty quick... Way to go down it doesn't take us back down to a where we want to go directly, but it's still a, a viable option so that's what we did from the top. We dropped down the east side and got to a nice flat glacier after doing some like down climbing and um, raffling and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and landed back on a nice flat glacier which we knew would eventually take us all the way kind of winding back down to base camp and We had to lose a lot of altitude, so we were still really high. And it looked like a really gnarly glacier, you know, loads of crevasses. And so you'd have to, like, wind your way through a maze. But in theory, it's just walking. We've done all the climbing and we've come down most of the way, uh, down the other side of the mountain. And so, yeah, the next day we just had to walk down. Hopefully it would just take one really long day. Yeah, so I think we're now on the sixth day, sixth climbing day in the morning. We woke up pretty tired, but pretty psyched to get down, back down to base camp to eat fried pakora, which are these like amazing potato, vegetable, um, delicious things that our cook was making all the time. We roped up and started walking down the glacier. And then, unfortunately, we were kind of weaving our way down through these crevasses and it was, yeah, a bit gnarly, but in a kind of an unlucky accident, Ali fell down into one of the carasses and rattled down a little bit. And um, then I was able to stop him with the rope and haul him out. And he was bashed up quite a bit. Um, he'd cut his head which I couldn't really see how badly it was, but it looked like quite a long, deep cut. And I know head injuries bleed quite a bit, but I also know they're the kind of things you want to get checked out. And I think he'd also hit his arm and his, he had like a really bad dead leg. Um, I was a bit worried that there'd be some sort of bone sticking out of his leg. So I like checked, checked the thigh, but actually it seemed to be totally fine. Just uh, like a massive dead leg. Yeah, I kind of thought, well, we could potentially get down somehow. Um, like we could walk down the glacier, but Ali couldn't really walk, so I could kind of like drag him. But then if I fell into a crevasse, could he then get me out again? And would more exercise make the head wound worse? Um, I knew we were in a very remote region of Pakistan and still quite high. Uh, so helicopters might not be able to fly much higher than our altitude because of the pressure of the air. And um, So we uh, had a quick think, but it did seem like even if we just made it back down to base camp with Ali in his current condition, it was important that he got medical attention, or better than what I could give him anyway. So that's when I pressed the... SOS button on the inreach, the texting device we'd carried. And I was sort of imagining you open this little cap and you press the SOS and it's like Team America arrive and there's helicopters and it's like, we're gonna
2: get you guys out of there.
1: <laughs> but instead it's like nothing happens for a second, and I'm like, is this thing even working? And then a message just comes through and it's like, are you sure? And it's like, yes, pressing this thing again and again. Yeah, I'm kind of sure. <laughs> we were under the impression that the helicopters, uh, the Pakistani army could rescue us quite quickly. But due to a number of logistical errors and miscommunications and things like that, we waited during the first day. And like I said, Ali's got a very tough head, so he was in quite a bit of pain and doing okay, but he was conscious throughout everything. Then by the afternoon, sort of as night was falling and the temperatures were dropping, it was like, the helicopters are definitely not coming today. So that was a bit gripping, because I'd kind of put the tent up and put Ali in the sleeping bag throughout the day, but then it was like, right, well, we're actually gonna have to spend the night here, which is not our idea of fun, because all we wanted to be doing was eating fried pakora in base camp. And so we put the tent up properly, and got into our stinking double sleeping bag which we have been using for um, quite a while. I have limited medical experience, but I knew his uh, head was uh, no longer bleeding. And so I knew that he wouldn't sort of like bleed out or anything like that. But I also knew that um, people can, Die of stress or shock, I suppose. And I guessed he might have been going through both. I suppose the, the real indication was that his condition deteriorated quite a lot in the first half of the night. That was, yeah, a bit gripping, but then, um, thankfully, through lots of like keeping him warm and asking him loads of shit questions, he yeah, by the sort of early hours of the morning, he was in pretty good shape. Yeah, I just did everything that I'm sure Ali would do for me and that we would all do for our mates and just try to keep him talking and keep talking to him and keep him warm. and We didn't really have any water and we had a few bars left. So just like give him what little we had and um, just look after him throughout the night. It was a bit gripping at times um, because of the altitude you naturally kind of, you lose your natural breathing rhythm and so you'll almost pause for half a breath but then have to do a really deep breath just because your body's like whoa I need a I need air right away and so Ali would sort of slow down into this uh breathing rhythm and uh then I'd be waiting for his breath and I'd give him a nudge because nothing would happen I'd be like Ali breathe um, but yeah, anyway, it was, uh, yeah, like a very long night. I was really grateful to have the, t- the texting phone um, because Ruth Bevan, so this is John's uh, wife, was a doctor and was really, really helpful in giving me medical advice. And John Griffith was kind of coordinating everything and keeping us really motivated or keeping us optimistic It's important I guess to remember that just because someone says they can contact you in Pakistan and they can in theory rescue you doesn't mean that they will be able to Ali and I were waiting for something like 28 hours or something for these helicopters to arrive and probably eventually they would have but uh, if it's a time pressure situation if Ali was any worse I would have been very concerned Uh, or even more concerned, I suppose. The helicopters in Pakistan, for example, just as a funny story, they take a regular helicopter and then they basically remove the engine and soup it up. Um, They like change all the gear ratios so that this helicopter will be able to fly in such high velocity uh, with the rotors so that they can generate enough lift just to fly at altitude. And they said that this is basically not a sensible thing to do for a helicopter. If this is a car, they'd be like, do not drive this car. But because of the environment that it's operating at, they need to basically like tear up the rule book on how a helicopter should work. And then uh, somehow it'll be able to fly in these higher altitudes. So it's not exactly like a super safe thing. And there's often, well, there's always two helicopters that fly in Pakistan in the mountains. And I said, when we got down, why have you got two? And they said, well, if first helicopter crashes, second helicopter
0: is new rescue helicopter. And you're like, oh, great. (laughs) There's a whole new can of worms here about what lengths people should go to to rescue you. In Tom's case, it was relatively straightforward, and he would like to point out that this is the only time he's been rescued, and he intends to keep it that way. For a more troubling case, it's worth reading Bernadette MacDonald's excellent book on Thomas Humer, who was plucked from the Rupal face and Nanga Parbat in 2005. And it was only due to his government connections that the rescue was enacted at all. Anyway, on to a more light-hearted tale. Hey, hello. Hello. Twid Turner started sharing some of his expedition oh, stories does, on Facebook so well, no, during lockdown. So I got in touch to ask him about and, uh, one of them, an early trip to Alaska. To be easy he so, and just Stuart just McAleese through, ended up know, stranded know. at the Kachatna Beans Spires the for more than two yeah, weeks, going slowly crazy.
2: I quite like the isolation. You know, It's it, for me, the classic one is Patagonia. Everybody wants to go to Patagonia. The all thing about going to Sholten. And, and really what they're doing is they're going sports, climbing around Ten and going and drinking beer and eating pizzas. And then the weather goes good and they all run to the hills, go climbing. Well, that to me is like, That's like going to Spain or Greece. You know, for me, I like going and being in the mountains and absorbing that kind of the wilderness and the kind of remoteness and just feeling like it's you in the mountains. Then you make decisions based on how you feel, the group, the weather, the route. And it's a very different kind of experience. And um, it's quite nice being cut off. So I I, I don't like it when you're really connected. And um, I think it changes the dynamics of what you're doing. Um, changes your decision making and and also I think people they don't detach from from their their kind of home life they just they stay connected and then all that baggage stays with you instead of actually sort of like trying to put all that kind of what's happening at home on the shelf for a bit and then just focus on the climbing yeah it's I, I I for me I like that remote feeling and being almost cut off it definitely helps you know I was a mountain guide and people would come to the Alps and you'd go into the mountains and there'd be, you know, most of the time you, you didn't have phone signal. In fact, we didn't have mobile phones, you know, there's no internet. And now people, they get stressed if they go to an Alpine hut and they don't have internet or the phone signal. And it's like, you know, it's kind of like having another person with you that's there that, that isn't there. And, um, I see it in, you know, I see people, they can't disconnect. It's not a kind of, it's not that they have to be connected. It's just that they're kind of addicted to it, and it's like society sort of like made people reliant on a technology. It's really interesting. It's quite rare that people just like to just completely like just switch off. And I've seen it with young, a lot of young people. They they they, they they're so connected with social media that they they struggle to kind of like stop in being involved with that. So- you know they're kind of like their their um their life on social media and actually interact with the people you're with you know these sort of like instead of actually perhaps coming out say for a night having a beer or something and socializing and they'll say oh no i'm gonna sort of you know go and do my facebook things it's 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 really taken over i think it's society it's definitely changed i mean i you know i was away in brazil and you know and You know, a load of old school boys with Simon Aydin and Sean Hudson and Alan and we were like, oh, great, you know, being climate, come on, let's go and have a a drink, a piece. And some of the other boys are like, sort of like, wow, you know, I need to go, I need to socialise and sort of do my social media thing. And it's kind of, it's weird, you know, it's kind of um, as if society's lost that ability to communicate directly. People want adventures. I think people want adventures. I, I think is what what if, if people go away and they have a, an adventure and it's memorable and it's meaningful. Then it then it's that's what that's what the sport's about. I think um, the problem is now you know I think society is 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 forcing people to collect collect things to collect roots, grades mountains whatever and actually the whole kind of experience gets a bit lost. You know, for me, you know, it's actually. You know, it's it's going there and experiencing. It. That's what it's about. Um, I mean, it's great to read about other people's sort of experiences because it's sort of it's it's a motivator for me to then go and do my own things. But you know, I kind of feel sometimes we're just notching up things just to sort of to say what we've done. You know, and a bit soulless in some ways. It's all you know. Basically, you know, when you you know when you're a baby crawling around, you're exploring. You think, oh, what's in the next room? You crawl in the next room. It's like that instinct's there with with us. The social media sort of net is just sort of focusing us on on sort of collectibles rather than actually just you know collecting a well certainly sort of having emotional sort of experiences which are you know uh, feels really meaningful. Having an expedition in some ways where you are cut off is is I think is really good. I mean I think it's healthy. And I think people kind of almost sort of find themselves. Well, I've been going to Pakistan a lot in the nineteen nineties and 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 having lots of really frightening things and we'd been on Greater Trango with um my wife and Steve Long, Steve Mays, and we'd had an absolute epic, I mean proper epic, you know, really frightening. Virtual we were almost all killed. I mean it was, you know, we, um, we was we, we were climbing for two months, you know, it was a big, big deal. And um my wife who'd done all the trips with Louise, she's sort of I think she's just sort of burnt out from that fear so i was looking for something easy and alaska sort of seemed the place to go and you know you literally can just sort of organize a trip like there and then it's brilliant so off we went (laughs) we i didn't know an awful lot about alaska other than flying in and i'd sort of you know we would sort of over prepared in some ways and we 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 sort of chopped and changed our itinerary. We were going to get originally going into into sort of um, the Hess range. And we we decided in the end to go to Kachatna's, to the big sort of rock walls, which really sort of grabbed our attention. And uh, just two of us flew in there and we sort of landed on the Shadows Glacier and spent a month in there climbing. The whole trip was around about five weeks and we'd sort of tend to go in it takes a bit of time getting into these places. You can only fly in with good weather. They will only fly into the Kachatnas. It's about an hour's flight with with visibility from Talkeetna. So if the pilot, in our case, Paul Rodrick, if he could see the mountains, he'll go for it. So it's a bit. It takes a bit of time to get in, uh, and once you're in there, then you, you know you sort of. It's not easy getting out because again, they'll only come if they can f- fly in good vis. So you have to go in and then give them at least, they say, at least three or four days to get picked up. So, you, you know, if you're going to go for, say, two weeks, you need a three-week trip, need a three-week weather window. And we, we had, in the end, like a, a four-week block in the mountains. We had uh, a couple of other friends who were going to go into the Kachatnas later on after a couple of weeks. And uh, Paul Roderick said that if he dropped these other guys in these American Climbers in, that he'll come and find us and if we're ready he'll pick us up so we kind of thought after two weeks there's a potential pickup and um, we had amazing weather we just landed on the glacier it was just stunning weather perfect weather for the whole time so we 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 did a brilliant route a big wall route on the cathedral got down and then we thought great you know in a couple of days Paul Roderick's gonna fly in with uh, Jim Danini and and Jack tattle and we'll We'll have a beer and then we'll fly out, but of course the weather was bad at the other end, and we were in good weather, and they just didn't arrive. And we just we ended up just waiting and waiting. We didn't have any comms, so we did, we, we actually had a sat phone with us, but it just didn't work. So we just sort of waiting, assuming that the next day the flight the plane will come. So one day turns into two days, and then two days eventually turns into fifteen days. So we were waiting for 15 days for for a plane to come. You start looking at your food and you're thinking, (laughs) hmm, we've just eaten eaten a month's worth of food and no one's come to pick us up. I wonder if they're actually going to come and pick us up. It is interesting being sort of in a remote place and not sure about, you know, it it adds a very different dimension. I mean, the, the biggest, probably the biggest epic I've had is in Baffin. It was the second time I was there with uh, Mark Thomas and uh, Stuart McAleese. We'd done this room and we'd been on the wall. We had 24 days on the wall in Ledger. So it was really, you know, it was a big deal. We were bollocks. We got down and the weather had been pretty bad. And then the weather suddenly went quite nice. Uh, it was enough that it melted all the water. They melted the fjord, so the field went from being bullet-hard ice, where the skidoos and the Inuit could come and collect year, to just being mush, so they couldn't drive the skidoo on it. So we kind of waited a day or two. We realised they just weren't going to come and pick us up, so we ended up having to escape, and um, we spent a couple of days walking down this fjord in wellies. We took well- wellingtons, luckily, so we could wade down this sort of mush to another field the sand field where we thought well there's, there's probably more chance we might be found in this, in this place we lost i mean we lost ev- everything lost all our gear you know we just had survival kit like tent and a stove and a rifle and a, a bit of food and that that did feel really remote but i mean it was saying that i mean we had we had a sat phone I'm eventually i couldn't get through to the uh, the outfitter inclined Clyde River to come pick us up but i got through to my wife and she was showing a load of sort of potential parents around the school where she works in Switzerland and this phone call came up and um she sort of had to ask one of the parents for a pen and I sort of gave her a grid reference and I said look you know we're at this this you know the walker arm in the sand field and there's there's all these parents look at my wife and uh, says oh my my husband's lost in the Arctic I've just got to go and ring the rescue and apparently they're all like really impressed I thought where do we sign up for our kids? And she, So she then rang through to um, into Baffin, and to the Inuit, and then they knew where we were, and then eventually sort of came and picked us up. But I did feel quite out there. From an isolation point of view, we, we, as we were getting dragged in there, we met an American climber, and he was um, solo climbing on Scott Island. And, you know, we arrived, and this guy comes out of the tents, and, man, he, he'd lost it. He would probably lost it, you know. I'm, you know, you look at some. I think shit. Mentally, he's just, he, he's really fucked. And I, you know, so I sort of said to the uh, Joshua, who's the, the main outfitter, I said, look, this guy's he's, he's not mentally stable. He's lost it. You know, he, he's, he shouldn't be climbing. And the it just said, well, you know, it's up to him. And we kind of left this guy, and we, we, we got sort of dragged into off the order went climbing. But I, I do know that on the way back. They went back for this guy and, they, and he literally hauled him out. They said, right, you're out. <laughs> and they just dragged him out of the tent. So kind of isolation is, um, is, is good, but also it can be bad, you know, particularly in the mountains. You know, it can play on people's minds. It affects them, you know, and uh, changes how they work, in, you know, as a, as a climber and also mentally, you know, how they, how they deal with the stresses. We actually had a sat fire with us, but it just didn't work. Bizarrely, I'd sort of, hired it from Jagged Globe because I didn't know any, and I didn't have one I didn't know anything about it so I got in touch with Simon Lowe a friend of mine who uh, runs Jaggy Globe and Simon said look i one of ours and um, I picked it up from Sheffield and in the kind of the the heat of picking it up we hadn't properly checked it was working I, I, we tried it at the office and and I got sort of bundled out with this thing and it's like oh yeah it's fine don't worry and and it just didn't work <laughs> Forget what it was. It was it was kind of really old. I mean, this is going back, you know, twenty years ago. It wasn't on an iridium system, which is the best system for that. For that in the northern hemisphere, in North America especially, iridium works well. You know, they've got satellites overhead, whereas the is it Global Star? Global Stat, They they have more kind of satellites circling around the kind of uh, the equator, so the angles low, so it doesn't always pick them up. So eventually, we did get a signal, but we could we could hear people. Uh, but they couldn't hear us we were getting pretty stressed and at one point Stuart McAleese is holding this kind of dish above his head and I'm sort of like ringing and eventually I ring through his girlfriend um, Amanda and she sort of picks the phone up well she didn't pick the phone up the bloke picks the phone up but then we kind of realized it was like two o'clock in the morning so Stuart's sort of holding this this dish up in the middle of this glacier and he said who's that who's that and I thought I don't know. It was a bloke on the end of the phone, <laughs> and it wasn't Amanda. So Stuart got a bit sort of bit grumpy and sort of like stormed off down the glacier for a day. I didn't see him. <laughs> Thinking it's uh... anyway. It was just a friend who was staying. It was purely. Uh, it was a very innocent sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> Our Original idea was to go over a coal and climb something else from the Shadows Glacier in the Kachatna Spires. But the coals are super loaded and are really avalanche prone, so we decided not to bother. And we sort of literally stopped below this beautiful pillar um, on this mountain. And we didn't really, you know, we hadn't even thought about this peak, but it was like, wow, let's do that. It's just there. And it was brilliant. To to get onto it, you had to go some steep snow and cross a bit of a gully. And then you got to this big, big wall. And we sort of like, we we hauled a portal edge up there. And we just generally had a nice time climbing hanging out on the face. What I will say is that we had a very close shave on the approach. You know, we were sort of hauling a load of kit up to the base and we both got a bit spooked with the, the temperature and and then sort of the, the state of the snow. And we just got to this point, we thought, mm, we're going to turn around and go down. We'll come back later when it's colder. And by the time we sort of slid down this slope, just a matter of minutes, we got to the bottom, we turned around, and the whole thing had avalanched, you know, so gut feeling and experience there like saved our bacon we would have definitely been in an Avalanche so it did it did feel quite hazardous once we're on the rock it's easy and it's safer I think we had about a week up there uh, from memory you know we sort of had a portal edge camp and a bivy, and uh, yeah I mean it just takes time you know sort of you know get some some pictures, you might just do one pitch a day sometimes because of the you know the the technical difficulty of it you know it can be quite slow big wall climbing people sort of seem to think you know you do hundreds of meters each day but it's not always the way you know yeah i mean it's funny i mean at the time i mean that year earlier that year I'd, I'd climb the nose with louise in a day and then we're sort of big wall climbing and it's like you know inching your way up <laughs> it was good it was good crack actually it was great fun um, it's a beautiful wall it's first been climbed by, I think, Andy Embick and a few other Alaskan climbers, and they'd done a sort of a route further right. And we ended up sort of joining the top of their route high up. Um, we didn't know this at the time, but eventually we sort of, I found a pit off like really high up and thought, fucking hell, <laughs> someone's been here. Uh, but, the, you know, mo- the chunk of our route was, was a new route. I mean, it's really remote. I mean, you 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 when you you go you go to Alaska. I mean I've done fifteen trips to Alaska and you go to Alaska and you're in Talkeetna, where everyone's sort of bouncing out to go into the mountains. Most people go into Denali to climb Denali. They're all going, Oh, you're the mountain. And I go, Well, you know, in Alaska, there's thousands of mountains. And and you, and you talk to lots of experienced climbers and they've never been to the Kachatnas. You know, it's like sort of it's a bit like saying, you know, Oh, you're you're a rock climber in 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 the lake district but you've never been to glencoe you know but you, you think at some point you might get a glencoe but they just don't go out there it's just got this sort of aura about it of bad weather and, and conditions it just keeps people away after three weeks we started getting into our kind of pickup period where they said oh we're gonna co- we'll come and pick you up and the in the end they came in on the the last possible day that they could have you know so basically when you, you give the uh, the um the pilots a date said well, we want to pick pick up earliest on this day, and our last day is this day. And he literally came in at midnight on the last day that we we could actually get picked up and then catch your flight home. We were looking at, to be honest, we were sort of looking at walking out. We, you know, which is real epic. You know, another day or two, we were sort of literally just going to try and pack up and walk out from the Kachaners. You can't you can't walk out to civilization. You walk out for about a week and eventually you get to a disused mine where i think there's a telephone and there's a, and there's a possibility that you might be able to flag down a plane but you know it's a pretty um it's quite a big deal you, you can't get across the rivers there's massive rivers coming out of the mountains so you you know you, it's just not possible to walk out to a, a pizza hut <laughs> you have to um flatten the snow for them to create a runway uh, not for the landing it's for the taking off so they got a bit of pressure they can push down on, on the harder snow so during our sort of lockdown period for 15 days waiting for pickup we we built the best runway they've ever seen in alaska so it was like it was like oh we've had everything well, we were pretty desperate we'd even got this bad that we piled any cardboard we had in a little pile and if a plane went overhead and um, and every day a plane would go overhead, but it'd be kind of like, you know, thousands of meters above us. It it would set this cardboard off and we'd sort of wave, and we had SOS stamped out in the snow, you know, just hoping somebody might see something, but I mean, you know, no one's gonna see that from from high up. I think even if you're in a small plane, you're flying quite low over the glacier, it's hard to see it. I was amazing i mean we were we were actually going a bit crazy i mean we called the route off the wall bonkers because we were really we were kind of slightly losing it and um, we were constantly listening for that slight whine like a little wasp whine of the Cessna plane come in and we sort of like sit up do you hear that oh i can hear it and of course there wasn't anything we called it Cessna rear so we were lying uh, we'd given up for this day the tent was about two meters above the glacier on this it was on this mound of snow. And so the tent was on top of this mound of snow. And the glacier had melted all around us. It was just bizarre. And we were lying there about midnight. And we heard this, like, oh, this whine. And we thought, oh, God, yeah, it's just Cessna. And the next thing, it got louder and louder. And then, literally, Paul Roderick flew just a few meters above the above the tent. The tent just was virtually taken off. <laughs> we were fucking out of that tent as fast as you could get. imagine. It was like Thunderbirds. Boom, you know, we we're into our mountaineering boots. And Paul, by the time Paul had circled around and he landed, we were like, the tent was down, we were out of there. And, um, you know, we were like, obviously, must have had big eyes. And Paul laughed and we got into the plane and we flew out. And it just so sort of happened, you know, he arrived and we were gone. It was like 20 minutes, you know, it was just so fast. And we flew into Talkeetna and the World Cup was on. And we went into the Fairview, which is this brilliant old pub in Talkeetna, and England were playing on on a telly above the bar. Then, of course, Americans aren't paying much interest to the football, but we were right into it. And uh, anyway, we stayed there all night drinking. We stayed all night drinking, and sort of. I think we went back to uh, the sort of this bunkhouse where we were staying about seven o'clock in the morning, with a hideous hangover the next day. Yeah, that was it. Flew home. <laughs> Another good trip.
0: All's well that ends well, I guess. You've been listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. I'm Will Treasure. Thanks for listening. Factor 2 is now on Instagram, factor.2, or you can find us on Facebook as well. Thanks.